0: I'm on the ride Of a lifetime I'm on a ship That's sailing To uncharted shore And I won't be coming Back here anymore I'm on a wave I'm on a mountain. I'm on a roller coaster sailing across the sky. And the only trouble is in.
1: live from salt lake city utah this is heart of the matter where we do all we can to worship god in spirit and in truth i'm your host sean McCrane, and lots of things happening and one thing is we want to invite you out there and wherever you're watching this to go and get online email us emails up on your screen and uh send us your testimony of how you came to know the true and living god send us a uh uh However you want to put it You can call it a testimony You can call it just your story Whatever it is Just send it and say that And we want to put it up on our site So people can read it And, and relate And understand uh, How all people Are being brought forward To understand God In spirit and in truth Through His Son Jesus Christ Part of our hopes in this ministry Is to help move seekers of truth Through Christ Jesus From kind of dogma into more of a position of love and acceptance and long-suffering and patience, all the fruits of the Spirit, to help kind of let go of attitudes that create division and demarcation, sometimes literally hatred, uh, toward people who are different than us in many or some or a few opinions, and uh, to reach all people with a message of Christianity, all people, including each other, all the time. And I think part of what we can do in this vein is to start sharing some stories from lives of, that aren't always heard. We always hear in the Christian church about people like Wilbur, Wilber, uh, William Wilberforce or uh, Calvin or Luther or some of these men and uh, sometimes some women, Hannah Whitall smith different people. We hold them up, uh, Bonhoeffer, And we tell their story over and over and over again from the public, from the pulpit. But uh, I think we can start to share stories about Christians whose walk hasn't fit the model. And I think that will help uh, erase demarcation lines and division and anger and all that. I was recently sent this article and it supports these efforts well. And so I want to spend the first third of the show reading this article. Now, I have altered it in two places. The word universalist has been assigned to the person this article talks about. But as I read through it, this person is not a universalist in the classic sense. The person is a total reconciliationist, believing that God will bring people to him uh, in time, but only through Christ Jesus. And that's the difference between the universalist perspective and a reconciliationist perspective is that we're both say... God is going to bring people to, all people to Him. The Universalist says all roads lead to God. The Reconciliationist says only through Christ Jesus is He bringing people to Him. So, this man is a Christian who believes God will reconcile all people of different afterlife makeups. Of course, it's through Christ Jesus, but does not teach that all roads lead to Him, but only the Lord. Please take a minute and see if this story blesses your lives as it did mine. The person's name is Sundar Singh. Sundar Singh. Here's a picture of him. The article was sent to us by Derek Evanson, and he found it at tentmakers.org. It's a great site full of useful information. The article was written by Ed Babinski with two changes to Babinski's use of universalism by me, and I changed it to reconciliationism. All right, Babinski writes, here's the story. Sundar Singh was lauded by 20th century evangelical Christians for converting to Christianity around the turn of the century. Even in the 1970s, Sundar was highly thought of by evangelical Christians. At that time, I heard a Christian radio dramatization of the story of Sundar's miraculous conversion and his dangerous preaching journeys in India and Tibet. I bought two books that told his story at evangelical Christian bookstores. The evangelical Christian apologist Josh McDowell of Josh McDowell Ministries cites Sundar's conversion in the first and second editions of his book, Evidence Demands a Verdict. While reading the evangelical versions of Sundar's life and teachings, I never once ran across his Sundar's total reconciliationist statements, and it was not until I read Sundar's own words, along with some of the in-depth biographies that have been written about him, nearer to his own day, that these views came forth. Sundar was raised a member of the Sikh, S-I-K-H, religion. Sikhism is a sect within Hinduism that was founded about 1500 AD that teaches belief in one God and rejects the caste system and idolatry. Prior to his conversion, Sundar attended a primary school run by the American Presbyterian Ministry where the New Testament was read daily as a textbook, Sundar refused to read the Bible during the daily lessons, but said, quote, To some extent, the teachings of the gospel on the love of God attracted me, but I still thought it was false. End quote. According to another testimony, Sundar confessed, quote, Even then, I felt the divine attractiveness and wonderful power of the Bible. End quote. In the midst of such confusion, and while only 14 years old, his mother died, and Sundar underwent a crisis of faith. His mother was a lovely, saintly woman, and they were very close. Now, when I read this, I can't help think, this is me, of many, many people who were raised by parents that were uh, ardent Catholics or LDS, whose parents were wonderful or kind, And then their children become Christian, and they wonder, and frankly, they often worry so much about the state of their goodly parents before God. So stay with me. The article goes on, In his anger over his mother's death, Sundar burned a copy of one of the Gospels in public. He later said, quote, Although I believed that I had done a very good deed by burning the Bible, I felt unhappy, he said. Within 3 days Sundar could bear his misery no longer. Late one night in December of 1903, he rose from bed and prayed that God reveal himself to him if he really existed. Otherwise, he said, quote, "I plan to throw myself in front of the train which passed by our house." For 7 hours Sundar Singh prayed, "O oh God, if there is a God, reveal thyself to me tonight." The next train was due at 5 o'clock in the morning. The hours passed. Suddenly, the room filled with a glow. A man appeared before him. Sundar heard a voice say, "How," How long will you deny me? I died for you. I have given my life for you. He saw the man's hands pierced by nails. Jesus was the last person Sundar was looking for. After all, Jesus was the foreign god of the Christian teachers at his school. Amazed at his vision, uh, had taken the unexpected form of Jesus, Sundar was convinced in his heart that Jesus was the true Savior and that he was alive. He fell on his knees before him and experienced an astonishing peacefulness which he had never felt before. The vision disappeared, but peace and joy lingered with him. To meet Christ was only the beginning of Sundar Singh. He was a Sikh. Sikhs had endured terrible persecution in their early history. As a consequence, they were fiercely loyal to their faith and to each other. Conversion to Christianity was considered treachery. Now, every effort was made to woo, coerce Sundar Singh back to his ancestral faith. Despite his family's pleas, bribes, and threats, Sundar wanted to be baptized in the Christian faith. After his father spoke words of official rejection over him, Sundar became an outcast from his people. He cut off the hair he had worn very long, what the Sikh men do, they wear long hair. And against great opposition, he was baptized on his birthday in 1905 in an English church in Simla, Conventional Indian Christian churches were willing to grant Sundar a pulpit, but their rules were foreign to his spirit. Indeed, he felt that a key reason the gospel was not accepted in India was because it came in a garb foreign to the native Indian people. He decided to become what's called a sadhu, S-A-D-H-U, so that he could dedicate himself to the Lord Jesus. He was convinced that this was the best way to introduce the gospel to his people, since it was the only way which the peace people were accustomed to. As a sadhu, he wore a yellow robe, lived on the charity of others, abandoned all possessions, and maintained celibacy. In this lifestyle, he was free to devote himself to the Lord. Dressed in his thin yellow robe, Sundar Singh took to the road and began a life of spreading a simple message of love and peace and rebirth through Jesus. Again, a simple message of love and peace and rebirth through Jesus. He carried no money or other possessions, only a New Testament, saying, quote, I am not worthy to follow in the steps of my Lord, he said. But like him, I want no home, no possessions. Like him, I will belong to the road, sharing the suffering of my people, eating with those who will give me shelter, and telling all people of the love of God. Sundar traveled much. He traveled all over India and Ceylon between 1918 and 1919. He visited Malaysia, Japan, and China between 1920 and 22. He went to Western Europe, Australia, and Israel. He preached in many cities, Jerusalem, Lima, Berlin, and Amsterdam, among others. Despite his growing fame, Sundar retained a modest nature, desiring only to follow Jesus' example, quote, to repay evil with kindness and to win over his enemies by love. This attitude often caused his enemies to feel ashamed of themselves and caused even his father to become a Christian later in life and to support Sundar in ministry. He was quite independent of outward church authority in all his religious life, thought, and work. He dropped out of Christian seminary that he briefly attended. Neither did he attach much importance to public worship because in his experience, quote, the heart prays better in solitude than in a congregation, end quote. He was also highly displeased with what he found when he toured Western nations for that for centuries had the benefit of the Bible and whose central figure of worship was Jesus. Sundar proclaimed almost prophetic denunciations upon Western Christianity and laughed at the way the West looked down upon religious men of the East as mere pagans and heathens. Quote, People call us heathens, he said in a conversation with the Archbishop of Uppsala. Quote, just fancy, my mother a heathen, exclamation point. If she were alive now she would certainly be a Christian. But even while she followed her ancestral faith, she was so religious that the term heathen makes me smile. She prayed to God, she served God, she loved God far more warmly and deeply than many Christians, end quote. Are the walls around your heart starting to fall down yet, or are you adding more bricks to them to make sure that you don't you know, allow yourself to embrace this story that's so liberal? Uh, this is what Jesus came to do, my friends. Don't fear that love, don't fear the unknown. God is in charge, Jesus is Lord, and, and stories like this are so amazing. To the Archbishop of Canterbury, Sundar made this plain, his plain views by saying, quote, There are many more people among us in India who lead a spiritual life than in the West, although they do not know or profess Christ. It is, of course, true that people who live in India worship idols. But here in England, people worship themselves. And that is still worse Idol worshipers seek the truth, but people over here, as far as I can see, seek pleasure and comfort. The people of the West understand how to use electric, electricity and fly in the air. The men of the East have sought the truth of the three wise men who went to Palestine to see Jesus. Not one of them was from the West, end quote. He traveled India and Tibet, as well as the rest of the world, with the message that the modern interpretation of Jesus was sadly watered down. Sundar visited Tibet every summer in 1929. He visited that country again and was never seen again. Few Christians know that Sundar was not afraid to raise his voice in favor of total reconciliationism. He could never deny to all non-Christians on earth the possibility of entering heaven. Of course, that's through Christ. In 1925, Sundar wrote, if the divine spark in the soul cannot be the destroyed, then we need despair of no sinner, since God created men to have fellowship with him. They cannot forever be separated from him. After long wandering, and by devious paths, sinful man will at last return to him in whose image he was created, and this is his final destiny, End quote. In February of 1929, the year Sundar disappeared, disappeared on his final missionary trip. He was interviewed by a series of theology students from Calcutta, India, where he answered their questions. Here's three of them. What do you, Sundar, think should be our attitude toward non-Christian religions? Sundar replied, the old habit of calling them heathen should go. The worst heathens were among us Christians. The next question, who are right Christian fundamentalists or Christian liberals? Sundar said, both are wrong. The fundamentalists were uncharitable to those who differed from them. That is, they were unchristian. The liberals sometimes went to the extent of denying the divinity of Christ, which they have no business doing. The third question is Did Sundar think there was eternal punishment? He wrote, There is punishment, but it's not eternal. Everyone in this life would be given a fair chance of making good and attaining to the measure of the fullness of the soul uh, that they were capable of. This might sometime take ages, end quote. Let me wrap up this report of this beautiful Christian man with a few additional quotes for you to consider. First, speaking of Jesus, he said, He was searching for me before I sought him. Christ, whom I have never expected, came to me. I was praying, if there be a God, reveal thyself. I was praying to Hindu gods and incarnations. But when he came, there was no anger in his face, even though I had burnt the Bible three days before. None of you have ever destroyed scripture like me. He is such a wonderful, loving, living Savior. We get so bogged down over who the LDS are praying to. And, and I just read a text from Derek from a, from a pastor asking him if, if, they, uh, if Derek and he are actually worshiping the same Jesus. I mean, this stuff just gets nauseating. Quote number two, there's a great difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing him. If we only know of Jesus as a good man, a great example, it is no help to us. Those who know him know who he is. When we know him, everything is different and we are living in a new world, a new atmosphere. Heaven begins on earth for us. Those who know him know that Jesus is everything to them. They can bear witness because they have been living with him. If we live in him, he will reveal himself to us and shall bear witness, not for a day or a night only. This man understood transformation of the soul by following and knowing Jesus here. Quote three, For the first two or three years after my conversion, I used to ask for specific things. Now I ask for God. Supposing there is a tree full of fruits, you will have to go and buy and beg for the fruits from the owner of the tree. Every day you would have to go for one or two fruits. But if you can make the tree your own property, then all the fruits will be your own. In the same way, if God is your own, then all the things in heaven and on earth will be your own because he is your father and is everything to you. Otherwise, you will have to go and ask like a beggar for certain things all the time. When you are used up, you will have to ask. When they are used up, you will have to ask again. So ask not for gifts, but for the giver of gifts. Not for life, but for the giver of life. Then life and the things needed for life will be added to you. Quote for salt, when dissolved in water, may disappear, but it does not cease to exist. We can be sure of its presence by tasting the water. Likewise, the indwelling of Christ, though unseen, will remain evident to others from the love which he imparts to us. Quote five, from my many years experience, I can unhesitatingly say that the cross bears those who bear the cross. The next one, while sitting on the bank of a river one day, I picked up a solid round stone from the water and broke it open. It was perfectly dry in spite of the fact that it had been immersed in water for centuries, the same is true of many people in the Western world. For centuries, they have been surrounded by Christianity. They live immersed in the waters of its benefits, and yet that it has not penetrated their hearts. They do not love it. The fault is not in Christianity, but in men's hearts, which have been hardened by materialism and intellectualism. End quote. Two more. When Jesus entered Jerusalem... I won't read that one. Uh, Two more. A newborn child has to cry, and only in this way will his lungs expand. A doctor once told me of a child who could not breathe when it was born. In order to make it breathe, the doctor gave it a slight blow. The mother must have thought the doctor cruel, but he was really doing the kindest thing possible. As with newborn children, the lungs are contracted. So are our spiritual lungs. But through suffering, God strikes us in love. Then our lungs expand and we can breathe and pray. And then uh, the last quote, he's very poetic. Just as the salt water of the sea is drawn upward by the hot rays of the sun and gradually takes on the form of clouds and turned thus into sweet and refreshing water, falls in showers on the earth, for the sea water, as it rises toward leaves behind in its salt and bitterness so when the thoughts and desires of men of prayer rise aloft like misty emanations of the soul, the rays of the sun of righteousness purify them all, sinful taint, and his prayers become a great cloud which descends from heaven in a shower of blessing, bringing refreshment to many on the earth. Wouldn't this world of ardent, ugly, politically driven, Doctrinally demanding Oppressive Judgmental Evangelicalism Do well to have more Millions more Christians in the ranks Like Sundar Singh We can only hope and pray And then be those type of Christians Ourselves And with that We are going to have a prayer Tonight By Cassidy Sean McCraney
0: that you are to us, and the love that you have for all of us, and I praise you for it. I thank you for all the volunteers here that help every week. I thank you for the viewers that watch all over the world, and for Dad and uh, his mind and his heart and the work that he does, and I just pray that you bring more people to your truth, um, and that you just
1: fill us with your spirit. Thank you in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Cassidy. Okay, so we continue to discuss the LDS view and makeup of God versus the Christian. This tonight won't be as long because I'd spend a lot of time talking about Sundar Singh. Last week we noted how founder of Mormonism Joseph Smith morphed in his views uh, toward God and how he wound up saying in the last years of his life that there are three gods: uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We also noted how this definition was really not that far from the trinitarian view with three big exceptions. First, while admitting like the LDS that God consists of three persons, trinitarians do not call this the godhead as the LDS do, but they say they are three, the three are one God. This mystery is in the end incomprehensible to us. To a Mormon, the three persons, personal gods are one in purpose, but not one in substance. Secondly, where Trinitarians suggest, like the LDS, that all three are persons, co equal, co eternal, uncreated, and have always been, the LDS have the Father in the Godhead actually forming Christ from pre existent intelligent material. Because Jesus came from eternally existing intelligence material, the LDS say that Jesus has always been. He is eternal. That's how they justify that line when they assign it to him. But the caveat lies in the fact that he was formed or created into Jesus by God at some point is where Trinitarians say, no way. Uh, They say that Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit have always been as those personages. And the third major difference between the LDS makeup of the Godhead and the Trinitarian is that the LDS teach that the Father and the Son have bodies of flesh and bone. The Son got his when he came to this earth. As tangible as man's. Where the Trinitarian says that only Jesus has a body of flesh and bone, but both the Father and the Holy Spirit are spirit. Uh, Both the LDS and Christian Trinitarians say that the Holy Spirit is a person, however, has his own core, separate core, individual conscience, consciousness. Uh, and, that, and that's how it, he is described. So, as we po- also pointed out in Smith's Book of Mormon, a publication which predates any of his claims about seeing God the Father in a body of flesh and bones, he never describes the Father as possessing these, these, this makeup as he has later on. Uh, this information came out to the public in one of Smith's post-1830s, like 1832, um, first vision claims, uh, which he said happened in 1820, 10 years, 12 years earlier. The former prophet of Mormonism, Gordon B. Hinckley, when asked, he, I think he was in New Zealand, if Mormons believe in the traditional Christ, he was in Switzerland. He said, "Quote, no." If he did, as the Mormon prophet, do you believe in the traditional Christ? He said, quote, No, I don't. The traditional Christ of whom they speak is not the Christ of whom I speak. For the Christ of whom I speak has been revealed in this dispensation of the fullness of times. He, together with his father, appeared to the boy Joseph Smith in the year 1820. When Joseph left the grove that day, he knew more of the nature of God than all the learned ministers of the gospel of all ages, end quote. Again, referring to Joseph Smith's first vision, Hinckley said in October uh, 7th of 2002, quote, Our whole strength rests on the validity of that first vision. It either occurred or it did not occur. If it did not, then this work is a fraud. If it did, then it is the most wonderful, important work under the heavens, end quote. Because we're talking about the makeup of God, the ontology of God in Mormonism and Christianity, we can't help but have to notice the first vision accounts. Uh, LDS prophet Gordon B. Hinckley said, quote, when Joseph left the grove that day, he knew more of the nature of God than all the learned ministers of the gospel of all the ages. The official version that the LDS missionaries use and the church primarily uses today, in effect says that in 1820, this comes straight from the missionary discussions, Joseph Smith was a 14-year-old boy living in the state of New York. There is no small stir among the people of his community who are debating about what church is true. Joseph described himself at the time of this religious revival, uh, that there were Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists, and they were in the midst of a war and a t- t- tumult of opinions. Joseph wrote that, quote, I often ask myself, what is to be done? And the official version says that after reading a powerful passage in James five from the Bible, he retired to a grove of trees to pray. And while in prayer, he was overcome by a dark and powerful spirit, and then a pillar of light appeared exactly above his head, brighter than the noonday sun. Smith reports in the official version again, When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages, whose brightness and the glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son, hear him. Now, remember, this is the official version that is found in the Pearl of Great Price. It's taught by the church today in the missionaries. The story goes on with Smith saying, quote, My object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects were right, that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself to, so as to be able to speak than I asked the personage that stood above me in the light which of all the sects were right, For at this time it never entered into my heart heart that they were all wrong, and which I should join. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt. End quote. That's from the Pearl of Great Price, Joseph Smith History 1, 17 through 19. In this official account, Joseph Smith mentions his age, 14. That where he was living, Manchester, and that there was a great revival in the area. He also mentions, more importantly to our topic at hand, when the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defile description standing above me in the air. When LDS prophet Gordon B. Hinckley said, "When Joseph left the grove that day, he knew more about the nature of God than all the learned ministers of the gospel of all the ages," he was referring. In the least, to something Joseph supposedly learned about the makeup of God the Father. That he had a body of flesh and bone as tangible as man's. We're going to examine the veracity of this claim relative to what the Bible says about God and the inconsistencies of the first vision account. But before we open up the phones, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413, I want to offset my focus on Smith's fraud with one errant biblical Trinitarian view related to this topic. Now, you tell me if you've ever thought about this. I was reminded of it by a brother last week. Trinitarians insist and make everyone else insist that God is three persons or beings that each have their own core center of personhood, being, or consciousness, however you want to put it, that have always existed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You have that? I have had very well read Trinitarians describe these three premortally existing, co-eternal, uncreated persons, similar to a father with an earthly son with a cousin. That is how a very astute, nationally recognized Trinitarian described how we need to see the persons of the Trinity. You got that? Distinct beings possessing their own eternal core centers of consciousness who together make one God. Whenever we speak of Jesus, the man... We speak of Jesus as the Son of God, who, according to Trinitarianism, is also a distinct person. But when we turn to Matthew 1, 18 through 20, this is what we read. Quote, now the birth of Jesus was on this wise. When his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then her husband, uh, uh, Joseph, being a just man, was not willing to put her away. And it goes on and on. It says, uh, the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take thee, Mary, to wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Twice in those passages. Okay? If, as the Trinitarians ardently maintain... That the Holy Spirit is a being or person with its own center, personality, consciousness. But Scripture clearly says that it was this person, this Holy Spirit, that overshadowed and impregnated Mary. Why is Jesus not called the Son of the Holy Spirit? He's always called the Son of God. But from what we read in the Gospels, He is clearly a Son of God of the Holy Spirit. Because that is what overshadowed Mary and impregnated her. When the LDS have really mucked up the makeup of God, I would suggest the Trinitarians have too. Mucked it up. God is one. Overshadowing Mary by his spirit with her conceiving and gifting us with Emmanuel, God with us, his word made flesh. All right. We're gonna open up phone lines eight oh one five nine zero eight four one three five nine zero eight four one three and while we are clearing the calls take a look at this new spot which I haven't seen Okay, uh, thanks, Cass. Great spot. Well, I've tried posting review again today about the CD bundle, and the submit button does not submit. So Pastor Sean, say it for me on the air like a commercial. For that perfect piece to sleep by, purchase the CD bundle. For that perfect piece to sleep by, purchase the CD bundle in his steps and listen as you dream to God's word sung. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Rivera. Appreciate that uh, plug for the uh, CD package. And we are talking about uh, the holiday seasons are upon us. And of course, we always do a holy day commercial package so that we can prey upon your pocketbooks and give you uh, uh, items that we think are good uh, in exchange. So anyway, uh, from Dr. Rivera, check out the CDs and fall asleep listening to the Word of God set to music. From Dan, here... It, Sean, he gives me a link uh, from a guy who's LDS. Here it is claimed that there is a way to solve the obvious difficulties with Joseph Smith's claim of having translated the book of Abraham from papyra, From papyri. Have you worked on any responses to this man's claims? You know, I don't... Uh, Dan, I don't care to respond uh, to the claims anymore. To the defenses, to the stuff. I will make comments about things, especially on something I'm going to talk about uh, later on in a minute. But uh, I just, the individual stuff and the proclamations that the LDS make and the stuff about the the book of Abraham and and all their defense. I, I don't spend too much time doing that. I just try more to just talk about the doctrine relative to Christian doctrine and what it means. Uh, before we go to our brother in Ireland and a and a email he sent to us, we have a call from Garland, Texas, from Roger. Roger, you're on Heart of the Matter.
2: Hello. Hello, Roger. How are you, Sean?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
2: I'm doing well. Just trying to get into another room because my wife is watching you on TV.
1: Oh, poor woman.
2: <laughs> um, hey, I'm 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 not surprised that. Uh, You're having uh, all the issues that you're having with the institutional church there in Utah. Oh. Uh, (laughs) I'm saddened by it. Um, And this is my second time I've called you. I called you about, oh, four or five months ago. And I just wish uh, that you had been around back in 1983 when uh, I decided to leave the uh, Mormon church, uh, when the Lord pulled me out, actually. I didn't decide. And, uh, Ed Decker was, uh, was the only resource that I knew of, and, uh, I, uh, um, you know, I, I, I saw the, I read the Godmakers, saw the movie and everything, and uh, you said there was a lot of errors in there, and I, you know, being raised in the church, I, I don't know what, where the errors are. Uh, wh-
1: Godmaker they- 2, in 2, not 1.
2: Uh-huh.
1: In the second one, Roger.
2: Okay. Yeah. Oh, and the second, and Godmakers too. Yeah. Okay. I never. I, I had already left that stuff behind. And uh, anyway, um, we were Baptists by then, and that didn't work out so well. And uh, entered three other uh, Christian churches, or I'm sorry, two other Christian churches, three in total. And uh, you know, uh, when Constantine declared Christianity. Uh, the religion of Rome, uh, everything fell apart. It was falling apart before that in the second century. And it's just got, you know, bad and bad and bad since then. Uh, all these guys want to control us. They, you know, I'm in a, uh, some people call it a house church, but it's not a house church. They're, you know, we're ecclesia and, uh, organic, um, and, and Jesus Christ is our is is our pastor.
1: Praise God.
2: Present it in all our our meetings. Listen, I sent you an email and uh my name is on it and there is a website I'd like you to go to and to take a look at. Uh I know you're a busy guy, but um, it's uh called the rebuilders.org. Huh? And
0: uh
2: just uh, I'd like to hear, you know, uh, get a response from me and find out what you think about it. Um, you you, t- you say you'd like to have some guests on your show, and uh, there's some folks out in California. You're in Huntington Beach, is that right?
1: Well, we're in Salt Lake City, but I go back and forth between Huntington and Salt Lake to visit the family.
2: Okay, well, they're up in Northern uh, California. I, I, I was thinking that you were commuting every week. I guess that was early on. I've been watching a lot of your older shows and stuff, and oh. it's been interesting to see uh, how uh, your theology has changed. And man, I, you're spot on. We can only, uh, the only thing that we have to have in common is the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. And him crucified. Uh, that's the only doctrine that we have in our group. And uh, and then everything else is up for discussion.
1: That's awesome. <laughs> uh, it's so good to hear another uh, like-minded brother out there. I know there's many of us and we just... We just kind of get overshadowed by the, the, the din of the evangelical movement. But praise God, Roger, I appreciate I'll check out that email and uh, try to get back to you.
2: All right, thanks a lot, Sean. God bless. God bless you, brother. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: Listen, you know what it's like for me? This is how I see it. Uh, when I finally realized that what an ass I was, <laughs> well, it's almost a daily event, but when I realized what an ass I was being relative to the dogmatic, Thing I took, uh, and then and once you do that, then windows and doors start opening up, and you start having things introduced to you that you can see and study and challenge and test, and they hold water. Then it, it occurred to me that Christianity is like this to me. You're sitting on, in a beautifully comfortable chair, and you're looking out at a desert that is just the painted desert. It's gorgeous. The sun is low in the sky it's and it's behind some beautiful mountains and there's sawaro and Joshua trees and it's just beautiful and you're just worshiping God directly you're thanking him for creating this world you're praising Jesus for saving you and a dune buggy blows by in the dust And it clouds you, you're choking, it's in your eyes, you can't see the vision, and while the dune buggy passes by, someone yells, hell's forever! And then, just when the dust starts settling, some idiot on a four by four, whatever they call it, blows by, and he yells, you gotta believe our way! And, And it's just this constant barrage of these people ripping the heck up of the desert floor, so that they can scream at you what you must believe and do, all the while you just are really trying to worship God in spirit and in truth and enjoy his creation. And to me, that's kind of how I see uh, everything around us with it uh, now. Now, I know there are great churches, and I know there are great churches that preach eternal punishment, that are Trinitarian, of course. There's all, most of them are Trinitarian. I know all that. I love them as my brothers and sisters. This is not, I'm just saying, I just wish we could all get along that way instead of just only those who are of this ilk or that ilk, ilk doctrinally. All the way from Ireland, this year in particular, attendance at regular Sunday services in the stakes. He's LDS. Around Ireland, has plummeted from over 100 on average to below 60 on average compared to last year's figures. The bishopric have been trying to offload callings to whoever attends on a regular basis. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. They unsuccessfully tried on a number of occasions to saddle me with something, failing to see that the problem isn't me, the problem is with the church or how they've been told to execute leadership. I'd be interested to know what you think is the biggest reason for a 40%-plus drop in people attending. The Internet and good people seeking truth. I think that is the, the reason, the Internet. The LDS have responded with something we're going to talk about in just a second. And it's a really important source for everybody who's LDS, knows someone who's LDS, to refer people to really important Uh, anyway he ends with I know you've been secretly dying to know the Irish translation of your name it's either Sean Mac Criani Sean Mac An Criani or Sean Mac nah Criani depending on the context of its usage so I thank you very much I love this guy from Ireland he keeps me straight Uh, When you say you're a confirmed modalist, what does that mean? It means I believe in one God. It means I believe that the word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the Messiah, who is God with us. It means that I live by God in spirit, worship him in spirit and truth, relate to him by the Holy Spirit, that he gifted all people who have believed on his son who he sent. That's what it means to me. That's what it means to me. I might not fit the proper definition, but that's what it means to me. Uh, The LDS Church has been publishing something called Gospel Essays. Uh, If you go to lds.org and you click on Gospel Topics and then explore the essays, you are going to read articles, Are Mormons Christian? Becoming Like God, The Book of Mormon and DNA Studies, Book of Mormon Translation, First Vision Accounts, Peace and violence among 19th century LDS. Plural marriage and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Race and the priesthood. Translation and historicity of the book of Abraham. And now two new ones, Mother in Heaven and Joseph Smith's teaching about priesthood, temple, and women. Now, this is all on their website, okay? And it's their effort at trying to... staunch the hemorrhaging that is going on and to try to incorporate all that they can to justify many of the doctrines that when people really understand them stop attending the ward like they're doing there in ireland Um, so the problem with them is they're pretty slick and they are i mean the the lds church leaders are pretty good pr machine and they really know how to address things without getting uh, with that kind of bolster their position while looking like they're being transparent. For instance, in the article on Mother in Heaven and the newest one, Joseph Smith's teaching about priesthood and temple, they cite in their notes uh, Elaine Anderson Cannon on Mother in Heaven, Zena Diantha Huntington-Young on something that she experienced, W.W. Uh, Phelps, Jill Mulvey-Durr, and uh, more women are cited in this than you can believe in terms of their scholarship or things they have to contribute. In Joseph Smith's teaching about the priesthood, temple, and women, we have in their notes cited uh, Anne Brode, Rebecca Larson, Anne Boland—not the same as the of English fame—Durr uh, again, who uh, is a woman, Sarah M. Kimball early Relief Society remnants. Nauvoo Relief Society minutes are quoted nine times in the article, 10 times, 11 times. Judith Higby is quoted. Durr is quoted again. And then I stop. and more Relief Society minutes, and I stopped looking there, and there's two more, three more pages of notes. Why? Because the criticism falling upon them heavily is about women in the priesthood, and so, what this is, is to try to show, listen, and the article is really slanted toward how we are sharers in this priesthood with our husbands. And that has been taught. That's not something new. But it really is slanted to try to make it look like the women are all priesthood except for the ordination. Just like black people were all members except for the ordination. So, you gotta read these with kind of a, 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 um, uh, some scrutiny and a critical eye and you can see through what they're trying to do trying to do but uh in this one on uh, heavenly mother and we're going to wrap it up with this if we don't have any other calls it says the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints teaches that all human beings male and female are beloved spirit children of heavenly parents a heavenly father and heavenly mother the understanding is rooted in scriptural and prophetic teachings about the nature of god our relationship to deity and in the godly potential of men and women. The doctrine of Heavenly Mother is a cherished and distinctive belief among the Latter-day Saints. Now, I don't think they've really ever denied that. I think that this is not one they've ever been like, no, we don't teach that. I think they've always been pretty open about the teaching. While there's no record of the former revelation to Joseph Smith on this doctrine, some early Latter-day Saint women recall that he personally taught them about Mother in Heaven, and they give a reference to that. And then they go, subsequent church leaders have affirmed the existence of a mother in heaven. In 1909, the First Presidency taught that, quote, all men and women are in the similitude of the universal father and mother and are literally the sons and daughters of deity. Sousa Young Gates, a prominent leader in the church, wrote in 1920. So you, you see through this how they are really endorsing the women and the prominent leadership that they have rolled. But anyway, she said uh, that the Divine Mother is side-by-side with the Divine Father. And in the family on the Proclamation to the World issued in 1995, the First Presidency Accord of the of the declared, each person is a beloved son, spirit son or daughter of heavenly parents, And as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. Prophets have taught that our heavenly parents work together for the salvation of the human family. So what has happened is, really, with that line included in there, prophets have taught that our heavenly parents work together for the salvation of the human family. We have kind of an expanded version of that Trinitarian Godhead uh, uh, that Smith was talking about and mother in heaven is in there the way they are describing that, that she too is working for the salvation of the human family. This stuff goes deep and far and it's, if you're a seeker of truth and you want to understand, uh, what your church is about when it comes to being LDS, consider the gospel essays by going to LDS.org. You can hear a lot of the bad stuff, uh, translated through guys like me who get it wrong and stuff. But you can actually read what the beliefs are of the Mormon uh, LDS people there. The question is, I had dinner with a, a, a guy this afternoon, a great one who's a believer, and uh, we're going to start seeing more of him. And really the question is, what do you think of Jesus? What is he in your life? What, how do you relate to God And if it's not through him, what's it through and why and how and how do they compare? All these things really, it simmers down to what our caller Roger said from Garland, Texas. Who is he to you? I am convinced there is no more important question for a human being to come to understand or come to answer than who Jesus is to them, what he means to them, how they embraced him as Lord and Savior of their life, and no other way to get to God but by and through him. So, with that, let's wrap tonight up a few minutes early. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.
0: I'm on the ride, going nowhere. I'm on the ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going This man's awake A storm's arising The dawn's awaiting Till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light-filled monkeys start